Hello, and welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. I'm Emily Thompson. And I'm Kathleen Shannon. And I'm Farnoosh Tarabi, and I'm Being Boss. Today, we're talking about money planning with Farnoosh Tarabi. As always, you can find all the tools, books, and links we reference on the show notes at www.beingboss.club. All right, bosses, Caitlin here works with us behind the scenes here at Being Boss, and today she's popping in for a minute here to talk about money. So you work over here on the Being Boss team, but you're also a freelancer. How do you use FreshBooks to manage your client invoices? Well, I send my invoices through FreshBooks, and I'm lucky enough to not have to think about them from there because my clients pay me on time. But even if they didn't, I could set up reminders through FreshBooks. Just set it and forget it, and then I don't have to feel like I'm nagging. How about tracking expenses? Uh, If I have to buy something for a client or if I have travel expenses related to work I'm doing, it's super easy to just upload a photo from my phone. They have a great app. Or from my desktop, a confirmation email or something like that, and then just add it as a line item on the invoice. FreshBooks Cloud Accounting makes keeping track of your books so easy. Get paid faster with their invoicing systems and keep track of your expenses year round. Try FreshBooks Cloud Accounting for free today by going to freshbooks.com slash being boss and enter being boss in the how did you hear about us section. Now, we know our bosses, and we know that many of you are looking to easily sell online courses, memberships, and digital downloads to your audience. Well, we found a solution for you in Podia, your all-in-one digital storefront where you can sell your online boss creations in one place with no technical knowledge needed, no third-party plugins required, and zero transaction fees. Start selling today with a 14-day free trial of Podia and as an exclusive offer to the Being Boss listeners, 15% off for life by going to podia.com slash boss. That's podia.com slash boss. Farnoosh Tarabi is a one of America's leading personal finance authorities hooked on helping Americans live their richest, happiest lives. From her early days reporting for Money Magazine to hosting a primetime series on CNBC and writing monthly for O, The Oprah Magazine, and Mint.com, she's become a favorite go-to money expert. Millions of Americans tune into Farnoosh's award-winning podcast, So Money, which made its debut in January 2015. On the show, she interviews leading experts, authors, and influencers about their financial perspectives, money failures, and habits. Farnoosh, thank you so much for joining us here on Being Boss. We are so excited to have you because for as much as we talk about the mindset and habits and routines and making a living doing what you love, I feel like the biggest block always comes back to money, 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 money. So... Let's dive in. Well, thank you for having me on this incredible podcast, you guys. I bow to you. So I'm, I'm really excited to dive in and try to tackle this this topic. It's something that I don't think I've figured it all out, but that's probably a good thing because it keeps me curious. It keeps me uh, just hungry for more information around this. It's why I've gotten to 
where I have with my podcast is, you know, you know, you have to really love the topic in order for it to sustain. Um, So anyway, all this to say, thank you for having me on the show and I'm excited. Well, and let's mention like you're kind of a creative in your own right. And I want to make sure that our listeners know that you can be into personal finance and you can crunch the numbers and you can be creative. So can you just share a little bit of your journey as to like how you're doing what you're doing today? Yeah. I mean, I don't think anyone grows up dreaming they're going to be a financial author or podcaster or expert, as people say. And I have a hard time with that title. You know, I, I've always changed – like my Instagram's like financial um, enthusiast, financial uh, architect, you know, like the expert word like really I feel should be reserved for like doctors um, and astrophysicists. But that aside, I – totally started my professional career thinking I, I was going to be a journalist. And I, I am still very much a journalist, but I went to journalism school at Columbia. Prior to that, I had a degree in finance from Penn State. And I think I always had this this conflict of like whether I should go the straight and narrow or try to be a creative. I think a lot of people have that struggle. And coming from this immigrant family Middle Eastern. My dad's a physicist. My mother is like the most rational person. Um, I was encouraged to have extracurriculars in the creative space, like do theater, Farnoosh, go for it. And I did. I loved theater. I loved debate. I loved, um, I loved journalism. I loved writing. I loved speaking. I loved, I loved all of that. But it, but when it came down to like actually having a career and making money, they were like, do something where you can get a job. Just please. You know, like right. we need a, we need to have a legacy here. We move from Iran with two suitcases. Like, please don't screw this up for us. Like, don't be <laughs> don't be living on our property. No pressure. Until you're 50. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> so when it came time to choosing a, a major, my father was like, "Please, like, I know you have all these interests, but law, business, medicine. Like, take your pick." <laughs> I was like, "All right." So I picked business. And specifically finance, because you know what? I didn't see a lot of women in that space. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not terrible at math. I don't hate it. But let's go somewhere where I feel like I can really shine because of my differences. And that's something that I – we can talk about later. Like I, I didn't always appreciate my differences. It was sort of a coming-of-age thing, a comeuppance, so to speak. Like, you know, I always struggled with being different as a kid. But then I something clicked. Like in college, I was like, no, being different is cool. And even now, you know, it's, it's all about our differences. So I went and I pursued finance. But always there was this voice inside of me that was like, like, could you maybe like also do stand-up comedy in the evenings? And maybe, you know, you could direct a play. And maybe I, maybe I should apply to film school. You know, there was, there was still a lot of this, the creative side of me nagging at me. And finally, I just decided in sophomore year of college, I was like, look, I know I majored in finance. I'm not going to back out because I'm not a quitter, but I want to learn how I can build upon this to still feel like me in the pursuit of business, you know? So I realized during an internship in college that when I was working at CNBC on the marketing, sales, and finance side, that really I was more fascinated by what was going on on the other side of the business, which was the news gathering and the storytelling and the stock market and all of that kind of on-your-feet live excitement. And so I decided to apply to journalism school as a graduate degree, and I went straight from undergrad to journalism, graduate school, and from there started working in financial journalism. 
and even there, I mean, it's pretty straight and narrow. Like you get your, you know, you get your assignments at Money Magazine. You do them. It's like it's very every month. You know, there's not like a lot of room for creativity when you're writing about mutual funds and um, tax credits. But still, along the way, it was lots of opportunities for storytelling. And then fast forward, you know, when I was now in my mid twenties, I was poor, as many journalists are in their 20s in New York City, I had to find a way to find many ways to supplement my income. So I was not just working at a staff job as an, on a mag, at a magazine, but I was also freelance writing on the side. I was babysitting. I, and I was also toying with the idea of a book about personal finance for young people. And, and all of that kind of came to a point around 26, 25, 26, when I left you know, one job went to the next job and I don't know what it was. I just, I think I also got laid off and that was part of the the fuel in my fire was that I had to now make something of all of these experiences. And I realized that the media world was, at the time it was shrinking, now it's growing again, but at the time it was shrinking, my job was, did not, was few and far in between as like a financial reporter uh, at a, you know, at a, on a staff at a, at a media company. So how could I sort of be my own person and be an entrepreneur? And that's really where I feel like the creative, um, the creative, uh, doors opened because I was then able to really do it, play by my own rules. And at that point I had a book, I had published the book that helped. And I just was this, I think I'm this consummate hustler, like even because I, th- I had to in my early 20s string together so many revenue streams just to pay rent. But that taught me how to make money and how to make something out of nothing. Like I would just propose ideas and people would hire me and pay me to do them, do things like write stories or um, give speeches or, uh, you know, host things, host events and write more books. All of this takes a lot of convincing. You know, no one like knocks on your door and's like, hey, do you want to write a book? Hey, do you want this job? Hey, do you want to give this speech? Like you have to really put be your biggest advocate. That's another thing that I learned is to – and then not in like a saleswoman-y way, like to be really proud of my work but to lead with this desire to help and that always makes for a great – case for yourself. You know, like no one's ever going to think like, oh, she's just in it for herself. No, I'm doing – I don't teach personal finance because I want to help myself. <laughs> like I'm, I mean, I help myself. It pays the bills, but it doesn't – you know, it's, it's, it's not a very selfish industry. You have to really be motivated by other people's desire to improve their lives and that's what keeps me going. I mean, that's to this day. Like I, I, I tell people, follow me on Instagram – direct message me your questions, I'll probably answer them within 24 hours. I just love like toying with people's issues. And um, people are like, I can't believe you're responding. Like, who are you? I'm like, I know. I don't know. I, I Maybe I need, I need more hobbies, but I'm really invested in your marriage and the fact that you and your oh, husband right. can't get over this financial issue. Um, so. Right. And I think that this is what's so interesting about personal finance is that you brought up you know, the stories that we tell ourselves. And there's so much individual, 
like baggage even that goes into the money stories that we have. Like it's not just a simple formula that you plug your numbers into. And while we all wish it were that easy, there's so many different aspects that go into personal finance. And I want to talk a lot about that. I feel like personal finance is something that we should all be chatting more about. But first, I want to talk about you being a broke journalist, writing about personal finance, and overcoming probably some feelings of maybe resentment, writing about like really wealthy, like hedge fund, whatever, stock market stuff, but also maybe even the fraudy feelings. That's a word that we use for imposter complex here is like the fraudy feelings that come up with this, because I know that even a lot of our listeners can't afford the the services that they sell themselves. Like for example, let's say someone is a business coach and their offering is $10,000. They might feel like, well, I couldn't afford myself. So who am I to be selling my offering at this much money? Or a painter selling a painting for $1,000 and saying, well, I I couldn't buy a $1,000 painting right now. So who am I? So did you combat any of those feelings when it came to writing a book on personal finance and feeling broke yourself? Well, You know, yes. And so my way around that was to really be clear about who I was. You know, I wasn't trying to be this, uh, this person that necessarily knew more than the reader. I was, I think, and that was my competitive edge for against all the other books that were out there who were, that are written by people who are super rich and kind of removed from Main Street. And I felt like I, you know, I, I needed a book first and foremost, is 20-something broke journalist who wanted to build wealth, who knew that there were ways to get to the other side of this equation. But I felt like I didn't have an advocate. I didn't have someone who was speaking my language, who also understood where I was, like the zeitgeist of the 20-something-year-old at the time, or, you know, even the 30-year-old, there's really no demographic anymore, right? It's just people living their lives and we're all like moving around the earth like through space and time. Like there's not really like just because you're 25, these are your goals and this is necessarily how you think. It's very fluid. So, but I, you know, generally the young, the young adult section of the, of the Barnes and Nobles was very empty to me, it felt. And I was had this great platform and this great you know privilege to be able to I had access to all of these great minds and all these tools and resources and media that every day I was getting educated and I felt like okay well I'm learning so I want to now teach my friends my I was that friend that my you know that people would come to like what should I do with my 401k or um you know I don't even know what is an IRA or and, and I, I want to buy a car like where do I start and so I kind of wrote the book from the perspective of Farnoosh in the trenches with you. I'm still learning, but I've amassed all, a good bit of knowledge that now I want to share with you because these are the biggest questions that I get given that, you know, this is my job. And this is also – I share in the, in, in, the, in the goals that you share. And I think that's why – you know, it did well and why I think I think it's what helped me differentiate myself from the market. Like I didn't try to pretend. I didn't fake I didn't fake it till I made it. I just I was like, I don't have all these <laughs> I'm not that great, but I, I do know certain things. And if you want to get on my boat, let's go. But and people did. You know, I think people really appreciated that. Um you they felt like they weren't being talked at, but talked to and with and and this is I love so much your content because I do feel like you're in it with us and I feel like a lot of the money stories that we're hearing is like I made a million dollars let me tell you how I did it 
even though that's typically the exception and not the rule and people are packaging it up and selling it as the rule if you just follow check off these boxes right and I feel like you're not this like but at the same time I think that people can get really paralyzed and feel like if they're if they're not making a certain amount of money, they can't start saving. They can't start putting money into a 401k. They can't buy a house or do the things that you really can do with more limited resources. Like you don't have to be a millionaire to start behaving in ways that help you build your wealth. Yes. So much of this, so much of building wealth has, yes, having money helps, but 80% of it is mindset and habits and establishing a plan. So many people don't even have a plan. Um, so it's it's not even about the, the amount of money in your bank account. And there's this great quote that I repeat. I don't remember who said it first, so I don't own this quote, but it was something like, it, you don't have to be wealthy to invest, but you need to invest to be wealthy. And, very, you know, this is where I think young people, this is where we have the most opportunity, the most privilege our youth the fact that we are young we have okay we don't have a lot of money but we have time and the one thing that i hear on and on from people who are our parents generation our grandparents generation they say to me i wish i had started saving earlier and you know i don't have to run the compound interest calculators on this podcast i don't want to but it's true that the earlier you start even with a little bit of money even with less money than when you start in your 30s if you keep at it and you stay consistent and relatively speaking you're going to have more money in at the end of you know 30 years or 25 years and that you're investing that money and so i think that's always hopeful and encouraging to hear and be reminded of that because you can with $5 a day i mean just start so right that's the thing i always say like once you start, it's that muscle that you flex and it's just going to get stronger and stronger and easier and easier to save. And once you see the money pile up, there's a great app called Digit. Have you heard of it? No. Tell us about it. So I interviewed the founder way back when, when he just kind of launched this app and now it's exploded and it's only been a few years. Um, it's really caught on. So Digit is this really easy tool. You hook it up to your checking account your bank account. And Digit has an algorithm. It starts to see how you make money, like what's your income versus your expenses. And every day or every so often, it'll say, hey, do you want to save $3 today? Or I think we should save $17. Very nominal amounts. Like who doesn't have $4 or $6 or $12? And it's not every day. It's, you know, you can actually set the pace. But over the course of a month, you could have over $100, $200 more. And in totality, Digit has saved its users over a billion dollars since it has launched. And people love it because they're like, it's a no-brainer. It's not money that I don't have. It's money that I do have that's sitting in my bank account that I'm not using. And Digit has been – is wise enough. It's like figured it out. And I have no relationship with Digit. I'm not like pr- promoting this product because I'm going to be making any money. I just really <laughs> like it. And it's easy – Digit, the founder, really understands that we don't like to save money. Like, who likes to save money? I like to spend money. I'd much prefer to buy something than to put money in a bank account. I mean, I I like the idea of having money for a rainy day and saving up for a goal. That excites me. But in the moment, I of course, like it's more fun to spend like and to receive something. It's more instantly gratifying. So knowing that, 
And knowing that left to our own volitions, we don't save, they, he just like, done, I'm going to make an app. And in the beginning, it was actually asking you, hey, can I save $5 for you? When you prompted people to reply yes or no, people just didn't reply because they were that mm. lazy. So it just yeah. started to say, hey, I'm saving $5 for you. And as part of the agreement, you allow it to do that. You can then go in and stop it, but like who's going to do that? So at, when they made that slight change in behavior, everyone started to save more money. That's fascinating. And is it saving to a savings account that is hooked up to your bank account or is it sending it into like a 401k? It's saving it into an online digit account, like a virtual digit branded account, which is okay. basically like any other online account. And you can transfer the money and uh, yeah. So and anytime you want, you can withdraw the money. I want to talk for half a second about the like million little mindset shifts that happen in like this single tool. This idea of making it as easy as possible for you to do something like, you know, tuck $2 in that other pocket or whatever yeah. it may be. Or, you know, the idea of saving two versus $2 versus $200 and how it's so much easier for us to do those small amounts than ever to do a large amount. Or also just the amazingness of having technology at our fingertips these days that allows us to do those sorts of things. I mean, I feel like actually my partner told me the other day he had read some article about how, you know, millennials are like the poorest generation more or less of all time in the grand scheme of um, of where all the money is these days. And that's had several factors playing into it. But we're also the most digitally minded. Like we're also, we also have the most access to these tools and have the understanding of them. And how fascinating it is that, you know, at a time when there is that whole generation who is struggling, we also have everything literally at our fingertips to help us overcome it. I think all of that is super fascinating to me. I'm so glad to be around in a time when we can see things like this in action. And so much transparency now than ever before. And I think we're, you know, I looked at the recession as a terrible thing, but ultimately a terrible thing that taught us so much. And I do think that we are benefiting now from the learnings of the recession. We're asking the good questions. We're building the technologies and the tools to create transparency so people can see where their money is going. We know what the fees are associated with our investments or we're supposed to know. Now there's there needs to be some level, a better level of disclosure. Um, financial advisors are coming out and saying, you know what? Picking stocks ain't so great. Maybe right. just buy an index fund, you know? And um, so I think that that's, I think that where we are today, like you said, um, is uh, in some ways unprecedented for, for good and some difficult reasons. But I think ultimately it's a positive. I look at it as a net positive because if we have all these tools and resources and the speed of having these resources um, and the robustness of these resources is unparalleled to our parents' generation and we should take advantage of that. And some people are. Apps like Digit and Acorns and um, it's – which is like Digit but it's for investing in a – in an uh, investment portfolio. So. Okay, so this is kind of a stoner question, but I know that whenever I quit 
my day job and somebody wasn't just handing me a paycheck and I felt like I was really working for my money, I started asking myself like, wait, what even is money? I could work and trade. I could work in any sort of way. And then with like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, like that is even further cracking open the question of like, wait, what is money? So I I don't want to spend too long on this like total stoner question, but have you thought about this very much? (laughs) Oh, yeah. What is money? Like what have you come to with that answer? For me, money is a resource. It's a resource like any other resource. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not evil. It's not it's it's just a resource. It's it's currency. It's Deepak Chopra told me he he thinks money is energy. So that's a resource, right? And literally a resource for you to use to accomplish whatever you want to accomplish, whether that's to improve your life, improve other people's lives, build things, destroy your life. I mean, like you can ha- like whatever you want to do. This is a resource and that also tells us that because it is just this thing, we are the ones, humans are the ones that kind of make it, bring it alive, right? So when we say like, oh, money is the root of all, the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, who's loving the money? It's it's us, right? So, or, so it's not the money, then the money gets the bad rap, but it's really the people behind it who sometimes do it for destructive things. And I think that money can be, is a resource that can be used to earn power. It can be a resource to earn freedom. It can be a resource. It can be a great resource. We just have to learn to sort of first have the right positive mindset and relationship with money to be able to use it in a way that is fulfilling and impactful and meaningful and right. And that's going to be different for everybody. I don't think that that's, there's like a one definition of what, how money should fulfill you for everybody. So some of those people that you have seen using money in a really impactful and powerful and, um, you know, positive way, I mean, you've had access to some of these like brilliant, wealthy minds. What are some of the mindsets or perspectives or attitudes that they have had around money that us, you know, who aren't making a bajillion dollars or even a million dollars or even six figures could start yeah. to incorporate into our own money attitudes and mindsets? So I think before they think about money, they think about themselves in a, in a way that like I am a resource. So money's a resource, but mostly I'm the resource. My ability to create and build and put good energy out in the world um to then receive the money, right? So how do you get the money in the first place? And I think that when you have the confidence in yourself to say, "You know what? I'm awesome." I'm valuable. I'm smart. I'm creative. I, I I know how to make an impact. And so then you go and do those things. They believe that when you put your best foot forward, when you do the hard work, when you do the good work, the money follows. And it's not manifesting. That's actually going out there and doing the dang work. And sometimes asking for the money because no one's just going to give it to you sometimes. <laughs> right. Like they don't just see you doing the good work. And they're like, here's the money. Like, here's my good work. Here's what I'm worth. Here's what I'd like. Please give it to me. And so that comes way before they really think about the money. They think about themselves and their ability to go out there and produce and be money makers. And then they get the money. And I think at that point, it's it's I mean, it sounds cheesy, but they really think about other people. They think about how to make an impact. Um, I've worked long enough for Oprah magazine <laughs> and I've done enough stories in the like, you know, sort of mindset and wellness space and how money 
kind of ties into that to really believe now more than ever that when you are a generous person, when you are a giving person, the money comes back. You know, it's just, it is, because maybe if you do at the end of the day think that money is energy, you know, you give, you take, it comes back, it's circuitous. Um, and that's a little woo-woo. It's a little more woo-woo than I like to get, but it I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in other people's lives. As soon as I donate some money, like, then I get a check that I wasn't expecting. Um, you know, so what, I don't know, what is that the secret? I don't know what that's called, but it <laughs> right. is, it's something, it's something. And I, I like to think that there is a force behind that, um, a beautiful force behind that. And so, but pe- people like, whether it's Bill Gates or it's John Paul DeJoria, who's a billionaire, I interviewed him on CNBC, these people donate a lot of their money. Warren Buffett, you know, he wants none of his money remaining in his estate after he dies. He has started an organization of other billionaires trying to convince them to say, look, you can leave a little bit of money for your family, but like half of your wealth, please give it back to the, to the earth. Give it back to the world and like however you want. But I would love for you to think strategically along those lines. I think that's really amazing. I always think about it. Was it Bill Gates who isn't giving his kids any money? I f- like one of those and I think about that all the time like how then what they are inheriting is perhaps an attitude because I have no doubt that Bill Gates children couldn't go out and make some money probably with connections but that connection again is that resource and that confidence of like okay I can do this so I think about sometimes like whenever I'm feeling low about money I'll just think okay I'm Bill Gates kid I've been just thrown into like the middle of the woods right I've got to get myself out so like what would I do if I were them I would trust that I can make money, that I have connections, I have contacts, I have resources and talents and skills, et cetera, all of the things. I think also when you have a parent, when you have parents like Bill and, like Melinda and Bill Gates, that their legacy is one that you want to uphold. Like, okay, a different picture, like smaller scale. My parents who moved here from Iran who are not Bill and Melinda Gates, but, you know, they've they're definitely incredible people and they they came here with nothing and they built a, ma- a magnificent life for themselves and their children. I feel like I can't screw up because I need to make them – I need to – it's not because I want to make them happy. I mean, sure, we all want to make our moms happy. But I think also it's like I want to not screw up to be able to let their legacy and hard work live on in a way that is meaningful. And it's a lot of pressure. I think I would be in some ways – very difficult to be their children. Bill Gates' child um, could feel like I could never add, like measure up to my father, measure up to my mother. But I think in some ways with the right mindset, with the healthier mindset and some therapy, it could be more like, okay, I've been given this gift, right, of having these two amazing people raise me. They've taught me so much. And it's not about becoming them. It's about becoming me. But I want to – I'm I'm so empowered to do something great in the world and so motivated because of the examples that they led by. And I think that's that's kind of like the hope <laughs> is that that's, right. that is why they become successful and why they will inevitably become successful. And it's not because they had money in the bank. Totally. Okay. What are some money mistakes that you see people like probably ages – I don't know, I'd say 23 to 40 years old. Like what are some of the, like we're still young enough to build some wealth and invest, but we're 
I don't know, maybe getting old enough where we feel like it might be too late to start investing. I don't know. Anyway, what are some of the money mistakes you see us making around our age? The first is like, we just don't even have a plan. We don't have a plan. We don't have goals or we think we know what we want, but we're not living the life. Like our, our spending does not align with what we actually want. So what we think and what we do, there's a big disconnect in terms of money. We think we want to become homeowners. We think we want to have, you know, we want to retire early or we want to just have money in the bank, yet we our actions negate all of that. So it's really kind of getting clear and it's hard. I think in your 20s, you're overwhelmed. There's like peer pressure. You're thrown out of college into the real world without any real job experience. First time first for a lot of us making money. So we feel a little lost at sea. But I think as soon as you can kind of gather and collect yourself and think about okay, where do I want to be in the next six months, one year, five years? Like really make a business plan for yourself business plan, personal plan, all of that, and and really know who you are and don't be shy about it. If you're somebody who wants to backpack through Europe for two years or you want to live on a kibbutz or you want to start a business or you want to um, become super rich at any cost, like whatever you want, I'm not judging, just figure it out and make a plan and uh, reverse engineer it with your money. You can't be taking Uber every day if you want to buy a home in three years. Not unless you have a lot of money coming in. And I think that these days we talk about technology. It's gotten a lot easier to connect, but it's gotten a lot easier to spend too because these apps make it so easy, like Seamless and Uber and I even Amazon forget. Amazon Prime. Am- like today I, op- I ordered Amazon <laughs> oh Prime now. So like I get it in two hours. <laughs> Who can wait a day? Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so... On the one hand, I'm like, oh, I've saved time and time is money. No, let's be honest. I'm, you know, I'm also paying a premium for these services. And unless I have money in the bank to afford it, uh, it it's it's going to be a, a net negative for me. And especially if you have other goals you want to try to tackle, like getting out of debt, buying a home, buying a car, starting a business, going back to graduates, going back to school. I think that once you have your once you put the, the flag in the ground and you're like, okay, grad school in two years or biz, I'm going to start my business. I'm going to quit my job. Well, what does that require? You know, if you're going to quit your job tomorrow to start your business, can you? Could you pay your bills for a year? Because like that's probably how long it's going to take before you start to eke out a profit as a business owner conservatively. So, you know, it's not impossible, but I think people just need to like have a plan because too often we arrive in our 30s and our 40s going, okay, now I want to buy a house. And we're like, wait, I need how much of a down payment? I need what kind of a credit score? Um, What's my tax bill going to be? You know, and we just thought it was going to be rent, but a mortgage, but it's got all these other costs. So that's the first thing. And it's, 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 it has nothing to do with money. So, you know, it, and then so the other thing is I would say not sharing those goals with other people. Like create a community around it. Again, these are not like dollars and cents rules. These are just right. like habits, behaviors, actions that anyone can do at any income level. Start to talk about what you want to accomplish in your financial life with others and don't be apologetic about it. Don't be shy about it. Others – may be on that same path and you guys can connect and talk and grow together and share. 
And in other cases, you can find a community online. You can start listening to podcasts. You can start to read blogs. You can, there's a community out there for whatever goal it is you want to achieve. And there's actually a study, the Bureau of Economic Research found that when they had two control groups, the one group that shared their savings goals versus the group that didn't share their savings goals with others in the group, they, the, the group that shared was able to save more and more frequently versus the other group. So find people you trust and, and, and people who you feel will support you and talk about the fact that you want to buy a house, that you want to go back to school, that you want to have kids and that like how, does, how do you afford that? Um, so I just had coffee with a, a listener on my podcast who reached out, a local Brooklynite, and she's uh, not married yet, but she's sort of like five years behind me age-wise, and it's like, I want to get married, I want to have kids, I want to start a business. You know, those are her goals. So great. Step one, she's figured that out. Like, those are things that she wants to do, but she's like, how do I manage my money to support all of this? So through my experiences, I gave her some advice, but I think, and, and she was like, wow, I didn't. I didn't realize this. You know, there's a lot of other women like me <laughs> who have all these same questions. So I said, you know what? Start the support group. If you know you've got friends and I'll come in and once a month and we'll talk. But it's um, – that is a big mistake. And saving. I mean, just start little by little. If you have a 401k at work and there's even a company match, do it. Like it. I didn't know about this when I started working. My HR – manager, Mary, she's like, you're doing this, Farnoosh. Our company matches dollar for dollar up to 6%. It's free money. I mean, you put in the money, then we put in the money. And when I left that job after two and a half years, I had $30,000 saved. What? And I was making $45,000 a year. So I basically saved like almost a year's salary. Oh my gosh. And it's so, I want our listeners to know that even if you work for yourself, you can still contribute to a 401k and you can match yourself. So even in my company over at Braid Creative, which is a branding agency that I own, we were able to install a 401k program through a company called Gusto, or is it Gusto? Gusto, that runs payroll for us. And I'm matching myself. It was like a way to give myself an instant 4% raise. Nice. Yeah. That's incredible. Right. So you have to think of it like that too, is that like you're giving, you're not only investing, but you're also giving yourself a raise whenever your company is matching you and you can match yourself. And I have found that whenever I commit to things like that, including like hiring employees or investing, eventually like you, you find the money. Like, and I think that that's part of that digit app that you were talking about is that you can find the money and it's like little bits here and there and you will like rise almost to the occasion once you do set those goals or set those systems in place. Mm-hmm. I want to move on to the next thing though. And this is, so you set up the goals and you have this sort of path laid out in front of you and then the money shit hits the fan. Or something happens in your life where, you know, your plans are sort of blown off course. So I'm going to talk a little bit about these like money failures or these moments where your plans aren't going as you wanted them to. Um, How do you deal with that? Or how does one, I think one deal with the mindset of, you know, knowing that this like hard, hard path that they've chosen is being blown off. And then two, practically, how do you get back on track? Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone. Rich people, poor people, middle-income people, we all make mistakes. And the ones who live to tell the story and 
live well to tell the story are the ones who are like, you know what? I made the mistake. I'm going to move on. I'm not going to make that mistake twice. I'm going to learn from that mistake. And whether that's because you, you know, you didn't have an emergency fund and your car broke down and so therefore you had to take the bus for a month or hit your ride for a month and that was really difficult on your career because you got to work late every morning or you gave money to a friend and she never paid you back. You gave money to a relative and he never paid you back. Um, you had a medical scare and that cost some money and you didn't have insurance or you didn't have the right kind of insurance. And so, you know, these are, all, I feel like when you're young too, it's like, let me fail as often and as quick as possible. Like, I just need to get the failures in now because it's a lot easier to fail in your 20s than when you're 40 and you have children and you have bills that are bigger than you ever imagined. Um, so just in, kind of like look at the bright side. Like, it could be worse. I also feel – I had Tony Robbins on my on my show, my very first episode, and I, I allowed listeners to ask him questions. And a couple of people were like, Tony, you know, I, I don't have a job. I lost my job in the recession. My 401K is diminished. I don't – my house is underwater. It was all these like sad stories. And Tony, in true Tony Robbins style, was like, get over yourself. You know, this is America. You have resources. Like, you're healthy. Think of all the things that you do have. I interviewed a woman who lost all her money to Bernie Madoff. Okay? Mm. And I was like, what did you do? How are you, like, alive? And she's like, every – it was hard. She's like, I cried a lot. It was devastating. How could it not be? But she said, you know, I made it my job to wake up every morning and think of the things that I still had. Little things, like I still have my teacups. I still have my socks. I still have food. I still have my husband. I still have um, the books that I've written. I still have my health. And so you start to add those things up and you realize like you're still this amazing, strong, invincible person and that money was just an aspect of your life that, you know, where you had a boo-boo and now you got to fix it. And so that's as far as mindset, I think a lot of it is like trusting yourself, believing more in yourself, having the faith that you can recover and that you have a lot of the resources to help you do that that are not even about money. Then how do you actually do it? I mean, it's really about um, identifying where things went wrong and sealing that whole, you know, if you realize you didn't have an emergency fund and then shit hit the fan and then you fell in the hole or you uh, whatever, start saving. And it's not about tomorrow coming up with your six-month emergency account. It's You have to also be of the mindset that this is a a gradual thing, that you're going to have to – this will take time. Nothing happens overnight. But the best day to start saving is yesterday. So just start and start little by little. And I do think that when you start to see the account grow, you'll be more motivated and you'll start to make trade-offs a lot easier. Like I don't want to go to this event or I don't want to go to this concert or I don't want to buy this whatever or take this Uber because I'm saving more. It's it's really exciting. I see it growing. And you don't have to save all day all all the time. Once it hits a certain amount, I'd say for young people, like a five, six-month expense cushion, you can stop and move on to your next goal. And giving yourself time is important. Like, also forgive yourself, you know, like, it's okay. I screwed up. A lot of people have screwed up before me. I'm not the first person to make this mistake, but it's really important to learn from them and not make them again. 
Um, and, and, you know, to, to just take those tactical steps, start the savings account, get the insurance, pare down your expenses. There's nothing like fear to move us in the right direction. Like sometimes it's good to get really close to failure. Like when you can taste fear, when you can taste failure, like that's not a good taste. And so you, usually that motivates you to like make some changes and do the right thing. The thing that you knew you had to do five months ago, but now you're like, okay, I better do it now or else it's really going to be ugly. Things are going to get bad. I feel like um, as creative entrepreneurs, we are in an interesting position where we can, we have like an unlimited earning potential. Like at the end of the day, you can earn as much money as you want. No one is writing your check or, you know, maybe you have a day job and someone is writing your check, but you have a side hustle where you can earn as much as you want. And so one thing I want to ask you is, do you, so I kind of think about money in a few different categories. I've been really focusing on investing and saving lately. Like that really excites me. But probably even before that, it was about how much can I earn or where are my expenses? Like how much am I spending? And so for a while, it was kind of like the Susie Orman, like stop buying lattes, stop going on vacations. And then probably around 27, I was like, what? No, I'm drinking my lattes and I'm going on vacation. I'm going to find a way to fund this. Like I'm going to hustle to make more money. So um, and now it's like really about saving and investing and like how can I start to really leverage the little bit of extra money I have to make more money? So whenever it comes to like saving, spending, earning, like where does your focus lie? Or if you had a pie chart of those things, like do you ever think of it in that way as far as like where you can like get the most out of your money? Is it cutting your expenses? Is it... I'm obsessed with earning. Like for me, I would much rather go out in the world and bring home an extra whatever thousand dollars than to find the three thousand dollars to cut out of my budget. But I still look at my spending, you know, critically. And, you know, if there are – it helps just to look at where your money's going. I mean, I think you can do a little bit of everything. But for me, what leads is is the earning variable. That's more exciting to me. I don't like living. I don't like to be frugal. Um, and I don't – but I don't spend when I don't have to spend. Like if I know that I can get something on sale, I'll buy it on sale. If I know that um, I, I signed up for this subscription and I it was a mistake. And so I, I, I stopped it. You know, I don't let things go out of hand. And that's important because I like to also extrapolate like, okay, so this $100 a month subscription – if I'm not, if I haven't used it in two months, I'm I'm getting rid of it. And if I um, save that hundred dollars every month for the next year, that's twelve hundred dollars. And if I put that in the stock market over the next twenty years, that's tens thousands of dollars. So you know, looking at at saving your money, not just as how much is this today, but how much is this going to be for me in five years and ten years? Like there are easy calculators online, and that's kind of a we used to write this article all the time. Every time a new iPhone would come out. I worked for um, thestreet.com. Our editor would say, okay, time to write that retirement story now about how much your iPhone could be costing you in retirement. <laughs> so we would take the cost of the iPhone and the monthly payments. And if you didn't have to pay this, if you didn't go for it, if you didn't splurge it, how much would it be in retirement? It was like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh your iPhone habit is costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars in your future life. 
That's like I have a car payment right now and it's about to be paid off in November. And so I've got all the car people calling me like, hey, someone wants to buy your car and they're just trying to get me into another loan. And then I think, wow, I could spend that money. Like I could just put that money that I've been finding and spending on my car and put it straight into a savings account. Yep. So I want to talk about savings a little bit. My strategy is buying real estate. I really like that way of investing. And I've talked about this before on the podcast, and I've even been on like other real estate podcasts. I am not a millionaire by any means. I save up enough money to put down a 20 or 25% down payment on like a 60 to $85,000 house. And this is also like location specific in Oklahoma City where real estate was super cheap at the time and just kind of jumping into that, like this market that everyone else is kind of scared to invest in. And that's what I did. And it would almost get my bank account down to zero. And I don't know that that was the smartest thing. But now I'm back into like I made a move to another city and that's not as realistic. So now I'm like exploring my options with different retirement funds and I don't even know where to begin. So I've got a 401k, but is there anything else that I could just be dumping like 500 bucks a month into? Well, it really just depends on what you want this money for. Are you like, looking? This is just like straight up retirement. Okay, like, straight up retirement. I'm Sixty, like okay. living a cush life. So you have the four hundred one k, which you're paying, yeah. which you are, which you are matching yourself. Yes, I would also look into um, a brokerage account where you can just create a portfolio. There are a lot of online platforms. I work with Charles Schwab. Um, I'm an ambassador for them, but I also have a they have this online platform called the Intelligent Investor, and it's basically a robo advisor. It's all ETFs, low fee, um, and they they create a portfolio for you that is catered to your risk tolerance, your age, all that. And it's like basically what you're probably investing in your 401k. You can replicate in this account, but it's one of those things where you can pull the money out at any time. But the idea is that you're going to have it for retirement. So I have one of those in addition to a SEP IRA, which is I don't have a 401k, but I self-employed. I have a self-employed um, um, IRA. And I also have a – for money that I don't need in the next year or two or three, but I don't want to put it in the stock market because I'm worried about the fluctuations of the market and losing the value and then needing the money, I have them in CDs. So you can find CDs these days because interest rates are going up. Um, it's going to be a good market for saving in these kinds of vehicles. Like they'll lock your money in for a year or you might make 2%, which is not the stock market, but it's also not 0.01% in your bank account. Right. So maybe anything like after that six-month like cushion that you feel good about, you could put into a CD. A CD and um, brokerage account, your 401k. I would start with your 401k because if you're at you – know, well, you know, or your self-directed IRA or your SEP IRA, like whatever your retirement – account is. Once you've maxed that out and you have more money to play with, then it's maybe it's an IRA, it's like a Roth IRA if you can qualify, or it's a brokerage account um, in which you're putting index funds, ETFs, really low fee investments so that you're not um, paying uh, stupid money like that. And then I think like you, it's about, well, what interests me? Like where does my risk tolerance lie? You have a lot of risk for real estate. So you're going to go for that. 
So do I. So that would be something that I would be interested in. Other people would say, absolutely not. I don't want to be a landlord. I don't want to have investment properties. What else can I do? Well, alternative investments, right? This is where we're looking at. You could look at crypto. You could look at um, investing Wait, in a business. How do you feel about crypto? Do you have nah, any money in crypto? I'm not, for, it's not for me. I would. I see. I was asking my husband about it. I was like, let's just put a thousand dollars in. A thousand dollars, fine. There's mutual funds. He goes, you can do a hundred. He was like, I'm not <laughs> touching that. I mean, the problem is, if you want to buy Bitcoin, that's like. But I think that getting in the crypto. I don't think crypto is going away. Okay, I'll say that. I don't. I don't know about Bitcoin and some of these other currencies, but I think like the crypto model, this idea of like creating um, blockchains transparency. I think that's something that people can really get behind. I don't think that's going to go away necessarily. So I like the idea of being in that market. And there, I think there are mutual funds where you can kind of play in a variety of cryptocurrencies. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm not sure about that because, again, I'm this is not where my passion is. It's not, it's not spark joy in me. <laughs> right. um, but I like I just invested in a business. I had someone come to me with a business plan and um, I gave her money. I gave her fam- it was friends and family round. So, uh, you know, I never thought I'd do something like that, but I really like that. You can to think about donating. I mean, donating is not investing, but if you're not looking at like kind of ways to make your money do things that are beyond just like saving for your rainy day and putting money in for retirement, now you can – I mean, that's a really – privileged place to be in, right? So looking at other ways to take risks with your money, calculated risks, but also to help people if that's something that is also important to you. Um, gosh, there's so much art. I bought a few pieces of art in the last couple of years. I don't buy them because I think they're going to appreciate, but uh, it would be like icing on the cake. And frankly, I would like for this to go down in the family, but um, some people really look at art as an alternative investment. Gold, you know, there's all sorts of things. Um, yeah, it's really more about like you have to answer these questions. What is my risk tolerance? What am I interested in, so that I can keep up with it? For some people, it's purely stocks. Like, open up a portfolio and just pick stocks. And not, I'm not of of the camp where you know pick stocks and trade them every day and watch them every day. But if you believe in companies and you think that they will last the test of time and you want to have them in your portfolio for retirement, go for it. I just had a woman on my podcast, Danielle Town, who wrote the book Invested, if anyone's looking for a book on investing. And she is the daughter of Phil Town, who is wrote the book Rule Number One, and he's a very famous invest investment educator. Like he, he has investor seminars. He's he's very well known in that world. She's like, I never really cared for it until I got to my 30s and I said, "Well, what yeah. are you investing in?" She goes, "I'm investing in one stock right now." I said, "Really? I thought you're like the investor expert." She's like, <laughs> right. "Well, I know." I'm like, "What's going on?" She said, "Well, I'm I'm building my portfolio and you I kind of wrote this book more about like the how to, but my picks. She's got one pick and that's Chipotle, which okay. I would have never <laughs> bought because I was like, "Well, now it's like $400." I mean, good luck right. with that. But she bought it after the uh, E. coli crisis. Oh, yeah. When it tanked and now they have like a new CEO and they're on the right trajectory. And she's like, I just really believe in the company and people love the food. And I was like, okay. Um, I don't have like the stomach for stocks. I think I'm right. interested in it. I'm like fascinated by how companies grow and the business of stocks. But I, 
to put down money for a stock, I think, um, I just don't really think the ROI is for me. No. <laughs> okay. I want to start to close out the conversation with the a conversation about financial freedom because I feel like that's what a lot of creative entrepreneurs really crave whenever it comes to um, living and working on their own terms. And it's this freedom and flexibility whenever it comes to their schedules, but also whenever it comes to their money. And I found that people are using the word financial freedom in a lot of different ways. For me, it means having enough money and investments that I can live off of the interest. I've calculated the amount. I know exactly how much money I need. It's $3.25 million um, to live like the lifestyle that I want. It could be a lot less if I was like in a tiny house or something. Yeah. But um, what does financial freedom – I mean, for some people, it just means making enough money uh, in their own business to pay their bills. Like it could mean a lot of different things. So what does it mean for you? Financial freedom for me means never having to worry about money plain and simple. It doesn't mean I don't think about it. It doesn't mean that I don't um, plan my life around my money, but it's it's also about like not having to worry about it, not having to think about, can I afford this thing that I really want, you know? And, and if I don't have the money, knowing that I have the financial ability and capability to go out there and make the money. So I don't really see it as this finite thing. Like, I don't think you just like hit freedom and then you can just stop, you know. For right. me, it's like it's an ongoing thing that I'm always trying to kind of enhance my financial freedom. So I'm financially free today, but I don't want to sustain this. Just I don't want to keep status quo until I die. Like, I would like to build on this sort of, sort of freedom place that I'm at and by that, I mean like to do more with my money, to be able to give back more, to build more, to create new experiences for my family and for others, and to keep working and bringing home the money um, because – and I happen to like what I do. So that to me all is what is behind my definition of financial freedom and I think that it's – it is why we, we all have different definitions and we should know what life is similar and – I think most important though, when you're thinking about achieving financial freedom, think about ways that your money can fulfill you as opposed to just give the appearance of success, right? So, oh, you have the house and the car and this and that, like that, you know, that's on the resume or on the on the LinkedIn profile or on your dating app, like that's successful. Uh, but is it really, are you really into it? Are, is your money really aligned with what makes you happy? Money doesn't buy happiness, but I do think that it can definitely get us to a happier place if we do the right things with it that are really meaningful to us. Um, and I think that's financial freedom too, is being able to exercise that. I love that. I think that I've just redefined my definition. I'm taking yours, Farnoosh. Okay. <laughs> I like that so much better than 3.25. I like that so much better than 3.25 million. I have a, because, I'll have an invoice in the mail. That's right. It seems so much more accessible. Right. I do love that. And I think that I think it's really important for that success versus fulfillment piece there where I think even us, you know, we're always talking about defining success for yourself. But I love the idea of even switching that word for fulfillment because success these days is such a loaded word, <laughs> such a loaded word. But I think fulfillment is simple. Yeah. The pursuit of success. It just seems like so finite. 
and limiting when you talk about success. And I know so many young people who, and entrepreneurs who like, they feel like they just did all the right things to be successful, but they did all the right things that were already stated for them. You know, they didn't make their own path. They didn't create their own rules. They didn't take the risks. They, they did it sort of like, they followed the proven path and then they got there and they're like, oh, this is not really what I thought it would be like. And I'm not happy and I, something's missing. And it's probably because they didn't mess around enough on the, on, you know, right, like, right? just get their hands dirty and, and do things that scared them and do things that excited them uh, and made them sometimes feel not safe, not crazy, not safe, but, you know, like right, just right. take a risk. <laughs> Don't endanger your life. That's not what I'm saying. But um, I'm also saying, you know, be a little more mindful of the fact that you are a collection of all of your life's experiences. And if all your life's experiences are what other people have been telling you what to do, that's no fun. Not at all. I love it. Thank you so much. I One more question, or actually two more questions. First of all, what makes you feel most boss? Most boss? Oh my gosh. I answer to no one. I really don't. I mean, I answer to my kids. <laughs> <laughs> but not really don't we all nothing to make us feel less boss than our kids bossing us I just, around i think i just feel really in control of my life and in so many ways i feel in control of my mornings which i never was until i became my own boss i had to get up and go to work and do like get on the subway and now i can get up and i can make breakfast and i can go for a walk and i can take my kids to school and i can work on work at 11 a.m. instead of 8.30 in the morning. And I think – and every day looks different. And I think that's because I am boss because I can I can design my days to look different, to feel different, and my, my life and my work. And so um, I'm very grateful for this. I didn't really know what it was going to feel like when I first embarked on it. I knew, oh, don't you be your own boss. It's great, you know. It's like great saying. But to really be living it now – it's not always great in the sense that, you know, it's, it comes with a lot of responsibility and a lot of pressure to maintain this, but it is a great privilege. And I know that if I've been able to do it for as long as I have, there's no saying why I can't continue to do it. So I just have to have that confidence and it, believe it or not, even I can have self-doubt sometimes, you know, like, can this really keep, can I really keep this going? <laughs> right. You know, is, are they going to pull the plugs on me? Are they going to turn <laughs> off the lights? Yeah. You know? So, yeah. Yeah. But um, I feel boss because I can design my life when I want, how I want, and and I'm the only one to blame for it. Mm. <laughs> yep. Sure that is enough. the truth. Wonderful. Well, what are you currently working on and where can our listeners find you? Sure. Thank you so much for having me on. This was such a such a great conversation. It fed my soul, really. Uh, well, I have the podcast, So Money, which I'm really excited about. I have a monthly column in the o, o, the Oprah Magazine. Um, I'm the financial ambassador for Chase Slate. So if you are a Chase customer or Chase Slate customer or not, um, one of the things that we're really proud of is that we really promote credit health and you can get your free FICO credit score every month through Chase Slate and we do lots of fun videos and um, it's been a really great collaboration with them. And what else? Um, you know, it's been four years since I wrote When She Makes More, 
uh, my book for female breadwinners, but I just saw Ali Wong's Netflix special. Um, yes. And she talks about being the female breadwinner in her marriage, and she just brings so much humor and freshness to it that um, – and, and, and it was trending on Twitter, like this whole female breadwinner thing. And so I feel like my book is forever going to be relevant. For I don't know how I feel about that. I thought it was going to like have a shelf life. Like we were going to like – we're going to master the female breadwinner thing in marriages, but it continues to be an issue of confusion and contention and complexity. So that's a book that I'm really still excited to – share and um and that is that thank you for letting me talk a little bit about myself there of course of course thank you for coming to chat again money is one of those things that kathleen and i will talk about all day any day oh, for sure uh, you know where to reach me and money like let's just talk all yeah. day every day about it well for sure instagram i'm all over that faux shizzle and I'm always answering people's questions so if you have a money question sometimes that's the fastest way to reach me Farnoosh Tarabi love it love it thank you so much for coming to chat with us thank you hey bosses I want to tell you about the CEO day kit the CEO day kit is 12 months of focus planning for your business in just one day. So Emily and I have packaged up the exact tools that we've been consistently using for years that have helped us grow from baby bosses to the CEOs of our own businesses. Gain clarity, find focus, get momentum, prioritize your time, make better decisions, and become more self-reliant with the CEO day kit. Go to courses.beingboss.club to learn more and see if it's a fit for you and your business. Thank you for listening to Being Boss. If you're looking for more help in being boss of your work and life, come check out our website where you can find episode show notes, browse our archives, and access free resources like worksheets, trainings, quizzes, and more. It's all at www.beingboss.club. Do the work. Be boss. Be boss.